This is Perspectives on Justice. We look at the most current and controversial issues in the U.S. justice system. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr., and I invite you to join me in exploring how the scales of justice are balanced, criminally, socially, and ethically. You are listening to Perspectives on Justice. Thank you to all of my Perspective on Justice listeners tuning in for another episode as we enter a new year. In 2021, we will continue to dig deep to recover the most pressing issues facing our communities while delving into the inner workings of the justice system. Today, we are taking on domestic violence. In March of 2020, stay-at-home orders were put in place as COVID-19 cases climbed. The nation met the isolation with a variety of emotions, apprehension, fear of the looming pandemic, relief to the working from home. But for many people, lockdown meant they would be spending more time at home with the person they fear most, their abusive partner. We often hear of domestic violence against women, but it's important to know it can affect anyone of any gender, age, race, or sexual orientation. When domestic violence occurs in a relationship, there is usually an unequal power dynamic where one person tries to assert control over the other. In some cases, that includes tactics meant to scare or intimidate a partner. And in others, it might look like physical harm or manipulating a partner. Today, I'm pleased to have with me Christine Neely, a domestic violence survivor. Thank you, Christine, for joining me and using your story to educate and empower others. So let's start off, Ms. Dealey. Uh, would you mind sharing a little background about your abusive relationship? Thank you, Judge, for having me here. Um, my story is unfortunately not all too uncommon. It started with my ex-husband. We had been together a total of almost uh, 11 years. My son was just 18 months old at the time, and we were, had been arguing in the basement. He was screaming and yelling all kinds of obscenities at me, and I had, had enough, and I realized he had been drinking and was probably well beyond drunk and wasn't rational anymore. And I was gonna go upstairs and, and check on our son. And as I was walking away, I felt this overwhelming uh, thud that just knocked me to the floor. And I, I couldn't believe what was going on. Everything was dark. I couldn't breathe. I was trying to figure out what was going on. I didn't know what was happening. I wondered if, if, some, if the roof had fallen in, if it was something else. And then I quickly realized that it was my ex-husband on top of me. And not only that, he was choking me and I couldn't breathe and everything hurt. And so I was kicking and, and screaming and fighting with all that I had trying to get him off of me. 
That was the first time he put his hands on me and the abuse would go on throughout our relationship. And it wasn't just physical abuse. There would be mental abuse from name calling of bitch or slut. Uh, there would be intimidation, raising his hands like he's gonna hit me or push me downstairs, daring me to do something. Uh, there'd be another incident uh, right before I left where he was beyond drunk, high, throwing things around the room, destroying the entire room where I'm ducking as he's throwing uh, lamps at me, where he actually comes over and puts his fist on my face, flips his middle finger at me and calls me a bitch and other obscenities, as our children can hear in the next room. That's pretty sad. Uh, and of course, uh, the first question that would come up is whether there were any signs about this violence when you first uh, met him. And um, I'm sure that he either changed or he didn't show any uh, signs initially when you met him. No, he didn't. I think um, one of the, the things people always say or that I heard quite a bit was, well, you must have known you were dating him. Well, no. Their abusers are very good at hiding their true colors and personalities. They're very good at being charming, luring you in, um, getting you to feel safe, being romantic. You know, there were no obvious signs of it. Um, there just weren't. Well, let's uh, ask you this question, Ms. Neely. Uh, what, what was going on in your mind when you recognized that this was a very, very toxic situation? What was going on in your mind? So I think th in the first time when uh, my son was so small, I, I, it was a feeling of disbelief. Um, for me, at the time, I was working in the law enforcement arena, and I thought, this can't be happening to me. This, this isn't happening to me. Um, and it was shame and guilt at the same time. And I thought, what, what do I do? What am I going to do? And of course, I, I didn't know what to do. Um, I think when it, when it comes home to you and happens to you, you're almost in shock. You don't know what, what to do. You're trying to process it. It's trauma. Um, and then there's always what we call the honeymoon phase, where they're, they're, they promise to be good or better. Did you ever think about calling uh, 911 uh, when you felt that uh, your life was in danger? For me, no. I was in a unique um, situation. Being law enforcement, how, how do I call 911? Sure. You know, people look at you, and, and this was something I encountered as when I finally w did leave and did seek help in the courts. I, I did hear from judges that said, well, you should have known better. You were in this area. Why did you wait so long? And that was something that he did use and, and try to manipulate me with. You're, you're law enforcement, what do you think they're going to say to you? If you can't keep your house in order, how are you going to do anything else? And that constantly played in my head, trying to figure out how do I get out of this? How do I, how do I keep 
my my son safe and how do I keep myself safe and how do I get out of this knowing that that's what he's going to say and and realizing that that's what the community might say as well and I did encounter it we're talking with Christine Neely who is a survivor of domestic abuse now Christine uh how did this uh, toxic relationship affect your day-to-day uh, -day, uh, activities, either with your colleagues, your friends, your family? How did it affect that? The first incident that happened uh, when my son was small, I, I didn't tell anybody. But I was always on guard, always um, watching and waiting. Um, unfortunately, it did happen again, and that time I did seek a restraining order. I did go to my colleagues and supervisor. It did impact um, my professional uh, career. It did it impact the people that I worked with, my friends. And he did agree to get help, but I was convinced to drop the restraining order because he was going to get help. Um, that it would be better for me, better for my career, better that it be kept quiet. Um, looking back, it's, it's not something I would have done. Was there a turning point, or at what point did you decide that enough was enough? The night that my daughter came running up the stairs, and she was just over five years old, and she was screaming and crying, unconsolable. I could hardly understand what she was saying. My mom was in the kitchen with me, and I was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? Oh my gosh, what's wrong? And I could barely understand her. And all she could say was, Dada pushed me. And I said, what? What? And her knees were red and swollen. And she was sobbing hysterically. And I went downstairs where he was. And I said, what happened? And he said, nothing. I just moved her. And She's sobbing hysterically, saying, no, he pushed me, threw me off the couch. And he was drunk, and there was other stuff around. And my son was lying on the couch, and I said, come on, Seth, let's go upstairs. And I hadn't even turned around, and he pushed the couch with our son on it and ran after me and pushed and cornered me into the wall and had his fist drawn back to, to punch me right in my face. And my mother stood at the top of the stairs and said, what's going on? Otherwise, I'm sure he would have pummeled me that night because I was leaving with the children. And I did leave with the children that night for good. I, I, I suspect at some point uh, you sought uh, legal help uh, uh, through the legal system. Uh, tell us about that. I did. Um, I spent over five years fighting for my freedom from my ex-husband and my children. Um, it took a long time. I saw over nine judges, uh, CPS, and I fought for sole legal and physical custody of my children. There were a lot of ups and downs. And I think that the one time my daughter came out of the court after she had spoken with a judge, regarding a restraining order, and she was upset and crying, and she was seven, and she said, Mama, why do I bother? She said, nobody listens, nobody believes me. She said, nobody will listen, I'm telling the truth. 
And I had heard so many times a judge say that the children's rights don't matter. The biological parents trump everything, even in abuse. And that's when I looked at my attorney and I said, no more. I'm going to tell our story and I'm going to fight for them because no other family should have to endure what these children, my children and I, have had to endure. Why did you have to uh, go to court uh, nine times? That seems like an awful lot. My ex was very good about litigation abuse, using the court system, installing, dragging, postponing, everything, refusing to pay child support being hauled back in for contempt, getting another continuance, making false accusations. Then during visitation, he would abuse our, our children. He slammed our son into the wall during one visitation, but was still continued to be granted unsupervised visitation. And these went on and on and on. And every time there was a hearing or a motion, it was a different judge. There was no consistency. It was never before the same one. At some point, things did uh, get a little better, and uh, what, what happened yes. that uh, you finally got some relief? So I, I will say two things. One is that the Family Justice Center opened, and I was able to make my way to the Family Justice Center to seek additional support and services, and that is a true beacon of hope and light for all survivors and family. They were amazing. They walked with the kids and I through all of it and provided additional services and help to us. And the other was um, I found an amazing attorney with the support and help of my family and friends and who rallied around us, uh, Mr. Randy Harriet, and then I finally got before a judge who listened, who listened to everything and read the entire case file that must have been at least 12 inches thick. And he took the whole time to read it. And uh, Judge Kilo was wonderful. He actually read everything that was in there and listened and, and ruled honestly and fairly. And it was the first time. Well, that's certainly good to hear. And I know I've... Uh uh, witness uh, personally myself uh, just sitting in court uh, seeing a number of victims of domestic uh, violence and abuse uh, get so frustrated at the court system. I'm so glad that it uh, finally worked out. Uh, were there any other resources that uh, helped you get through this besides uh, the Family Justice Center and uh, your amazing attorney, as you said? Uh, did family come help? Or, or? My family was amazing. Um, and not just my family, but friends. The church community was amazing. Um, people within the community by word of mouth, you, people that from church I didn't know well, who had friends of friends, um, people I had gone to school with who heard, uh, people I had used to work with came uh, to support, neighbors came to lend their support. But I do have to say the biggest support really was the Family Justice Center, aside from my family. Um, within that is uh, a whole bunch of different services, from social services to counseling to a program called SIT, which is Stay in Touch, which is um, survivors meeting once a week, which is phenomenal. It's, it's a place where you get to be with other people who have been through similar experiences. They have programs for the children. 
that place helps you heal and move forward, not just yourself and your children, but they also walk with you through the court system. So how are you uh, feeling after going through this now with your present uh, thinking and feeling? I'm very grateful and thankful to be through it as far as the, the legal aspect of it. My children and I are doing well today. They're, they're thriving. They still have some of the scars, but they're healing. And I made my daughter a promise that day when she came out of court to tell her story. And that's what I've been advocating for, to tell her story and to advocate for changes within the court system. Children should not be told that they don't have a voice and that it, it doesn't matter. They're the most important thing that we have as our future. And if it doesn't matter, what does that say? Uh, for someone who was in an abusive relationship uh, uh, and is worried and is uh, frustrated, uh, what advice would you give to them? I would tell them to hold on to hope and that there is always a way out that there is always somebody there that's willing to lend you a hand, that the doors to the Family Justice Center are open, that you could take that first step there. If you need help, say something. Say something to somebody, if you, a neighbor, a friend. And please try to find a way to be safe. You deserve more, you deserve better, you are worth it. And if you have children, they are worth it too. Well, I hope the listeners are uh, paying attention to what you were saying. You obviously have gone through a lot of trauma and I'm just so happy that uh, you got through it uh, and you're able to speak about it. I have one uh, last question and uh, uh, one goal of Perspectives on Justice is to help create change in the area of justice. So in pursuit of that goal, I ask uh, all of our guests to share with us, with the listeners, one small step for justice that we can take to make a difference. And so Christine, what small step for domestic violence justice would you recommend? Well, the one change that I personally Ha would love to see and keep advocating and talking about would be a change for justice in the court system, that there should be a domestic violence court and for more education for the justices to understand the impact and the trauma of domestic violence and not to judge a person, a victim, a survivor coming in based upon their appearance and to please listen to the children that come in they often are the biggest victims in a domestic violence Terrific situation. Terrific words, uh, Christine. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being with us today here on Perspectives on Justice. This has been uh, uh, enlightening, and thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. More than anything, the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way we go about our day-to-day -day activities. The idea of being outside with lots of people is now simply a memory with masks, gloves, and hand sanitizer being an essential as car keys nowadays. Barring those with essential jobs and commitments, many of us have probably spent the majority of our quarantine inside with close ones. 
While the idea of staying home with family and friends may be appealing to some, to others it may mean that they are forced to be trapped with an abusive spouse, parent, or other relative. While we at Perspectives on Justice know we cannot fully understand the position abused victims might be in, we will always be a community and platform that helps fight to alleviate domestic violence issues by educating our audience on the realities of many people's lives. If you or someone you know is having trouble at home during this time, we urge you to call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE or 7233, or the Maryland Statewide Helpline at 1-800-MARYLAND-HELPS, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. All right, you just heard from Christine Neely on uh, some of the frustrations and victimization that she described for us. It's not easy or simply for people to get out of a of an abusive relationship. It's just not easy to do that. Sometimes there's fear of retaliation, shame, or even worries of being alone. Where am I going to live? What about my kids or children? How am I going to pay bills? The list goes on and on. So next I have with me Dr. Denise McCain, the executive director of the Prince George's County Family Justice Center. And so I'll officially uh, welcome uh, Dr. McCain. Thank you for joining us on Perspectives on Justice. Well, thank you, Judge Williams. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Wonderful. Let's get started. Uh, can you talk to us a little about the Family Justice Center and what services the center provides, and then uh, what do you do? Absolutely. Well, the Prince George's County Family Justice Center is an initiative of the Circuit Court for Prince George's County. Uh, it was established in 2016 after a very long and comprehensive feasibility assessment that was conducted by uh, community stakeholders, criminal justice professionals, advocates, as well as survivors to really better understand what the needs were and really what the problems were. You just alluded to the fact that it's difficult oftentimes for survivors to leave abusive relationships. But think about this, when they leave, the system and the process can be very daunting and challenging. So the Family Justice Center was really born out of a realization that, you know, this was a serious problem, but also perhaps there was a better way to do this, to not make it so complicated for those who were seeking uh, assistance. So we now have what is considered to be a one-stop shop resource. Um, if you can imagine someone who has been victimized, perhaps traumatized and frightened to have to navigate um, a criminal justice system, which can be very, very difficult and complex. So this model, which has been identified as a best practice by the U.S. Department of Justice, we've simplified the process by including or incorporating all of the services that a survivor would need in one building. So we have 21 government and private organizations that are all co-located in one building, providing a full array of services through a very coordinated, collaborated, and what we like to consider a very hope-centered model. 
Uh, you asked about some of the services from very basic uh, to emergency shelter. Um, we provide legal representation, housing assistance, um, mental health services, and more recently, uh, transportation. We were able to purchase a new van, and so we're now even able to actually pick people up and help get them to court and take them back or to other governmental agencies where they're seeking supportive services. Now, you said you started in 2016. Uh, were you the first uh, director? Yes, I am the inaugural director. I'm the oh, director at the Family Justice Center, uh, which has been a real highlight of my professional career. Uh, I talk about all the things that I've done before now, and I feel that they have all led me uh, to this one place where I'm able to do the work that I'm doing. Fortunate to work with a wonderful, wonderful group and team of professionals, as I mentioned, from 21 organizations, as well as our staff has now grown to nine. We now have nine staff members as well. Oh, that's wonderful. It's just good to hear this. Uh, now, what about the impact of a pandemic, uh, COVID-19, on your services? Uh, have, have you seen a surge in calls since the pandemic has been with us? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. And I think most people, are, I've heard a lot of reports about, you know, these significant spikes and increases in services as a result of COVID. But realistically, when we initially uh, closed our doors in March due to the pandemic, we saw a significant drop in services. In fact, I was putting together some data for another report. From the time period of March to June in 2019, we had 319 clients that came in for services. During that same period of time uh, this year, past year, 2020, there were only 199, 199. So there was somewhat of a drop very early on, which is not surprising when you think that these are now people who have been forced to stay in their homes with their abuser, which means they probably are under surveillance constantly and had fewer uh, opportunities to even get help or ask for help or even perhaps even research help. However, since we reopened and uh, under phase two in July, we have seen a significant increase in the number of calls. Um, because we're still very conscious of the, you know, the pandemic and we, we're help, doing all we can to help prevent the spread, we are working at a hybrid model where a few people are in the building and others are working from home. So we're fortunate that we've been able to do intakes um, virtually over the phone, we now have a chat line and we're scheduling appointments. So we now are seeing our numbers rise again because clearly they're now able to get out, but perhaps moreover, understand that resources are in fact available to them. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Dr. McCain, uh, shelters. Uh, again, uh, are they operating now and should people be concerned about health and safety precautions? There's one domestic violence shelter in Prince George's County, uh, which I must say is not unusual. Every jurisdiction in the state of Maryland actually only has one comprehensive shelter. Uh, the shelter remained open during the COVID-19 pandemic, during the very height of it, and is still open. It's my understanding that the shelter did, in fact, take into account the necessary uh, health I guess, considerations that one would need to keep uh, survivors safe. So that should not be a concern for anyone uh, who is in need of emergency shelter. 
That's good, certainly good to hear that. Uh, to the listeners, I'm talking with Dr. Denise McCain, Executive Director of the Prince George's County Family Justice Center. Now, Dr. McCain, uh, I'm sure in your career, you've seen how domestic violence not only impacts an individual victim, but it also has lasting effects on the family unit. Mm-hmm. How does uh, your organization, so how do organizations in general like the Family Justice Center help uplift families? Well, you know, that is a very good point, and it does. Domestic violence has a long-term and systemic effect on families, uh, particularly children who are the silent victims. Uh, What we know is that they are oftentimes more prone to become victims or perpetrators when they live in homes or environments where they witness violence. But it also impacts the society and communities at large Uh, where we have even seen incidences where individuals have been killed just as bystanders or trying to intervene. Uh, One of the things that we do at the Family Justice Center, looking at this very holistically, is that we do try to provide very comprehensive wraparound services that address the entire individual more holistically. Uh, One of the greatest resources to address that would be the mental health component. Uh, We were fortunate to uh, have the ability to hire or bring on a a contractual uh, trauma therapist. So we are now providing mental health services uh, for our survivors, along with the fact that we also now have a support group. It's important for people to understand that this is an issue that It used to be very private. People were embarrassed. They were afraid, um, ashamed to even talk about it. But silence perpetuates the violence. And even with an individual, it's so necessary um, in order for them to heal and recover, to have the ability to speak out and to get the help, but mostly the support uh, to not be judged. So we work in an environment that is judgment-free. We call it a very hope-centered environment, and we give people the tools and the resources they need to move forward in their lives in a healthy way. Um, and also so they don't ideally repeat this pattern because we know that it is a cycle and it does, unfortunately, um, tend to repeat itself. Sure, sure. We have to understand that. Uh... And there may be uh, listeners out here who are victims of domestic abuse. So can you walk me briefly through the steps that someone should take when they're in need of help from your agency? Well, the first thing to do, and now, as I mentioned, we are working a hybrid model where you can either walk in for services or call our main number and get uh, and start that process. But again, it's a very easy process. Uh, the only requirement would be that you are a resident of Prince George's County or the crime, the victimization occurred in Prince George's County. Uh, We don't ask for anything other than just some proof of the fact that you are a resident. The first step would simply be to come in or to call for an intake. Uh, We have a bilingual receptionist, which takes very basic information just to ensure that we are able to actually assist you. And then your call or you are referred to one of our two intake specialists. The intake specialist is now the individual that will sit down with you and help to assess the situation. Each individual's problem or domestic violence situation is very different. So there is no one 
uh, mode or model. We treat each person as an individual and look at their circumstances individually. And we give them a safety plan. It's important that they understand what they need to do to stay safe, whether they're with their abusers or if they are attempting to leave, which typically is the most dangerous time for a victim when they're leaving. After that assessment is done, we will then, or the intake specialist will then make referrals to those other partnering organizations that I mentioned. There are 21 that are in there. So the person may now decide that they need, they want a divorce or they need help with a protection order. So we might refer them to one of our six civil legal law firms. We have six law firms in the Family Justice Center, actually. Interesting. They may mm -hmm. need assistance, public assistance. Um, so we'll refer them to the Department of Social Services, where we have a representative there that will help them obtain benefits that they need. Or they just may need to talk to someone. They may need counseling. Uh, they may want to get into a support group. Or they may need housing or shelter. So depending upon what that individual needs, we will then make that direct warm referral to the partnering organization, again, that's in the building, who can now further assist them. We also have a case manager on board who, if you have a number of referrals, we understand again that this process can be challenging. So that case manager is there to further assist individuals to help them get through the process. This is uh, certainly a great information to know. A couple more questions. Uh, on the average, every minute, Mm -hmm. Nearly 20 people are physically abused by an individual partner in the United States or an intimate partner. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, in one year, this equates to more than 10 million men and women. Yes. What do you think is needed for these numbers to go down? The numbers are staggering. And here's the other piece to that. Domestic violence is significantly underreported. So those numbers that you just cited are low. Only 25% of individuals who are affected by domestic violence ever, ever speak out or report their abuse. So just know that they're even higher than those that you just cited. Uh, you know, again, I think what we have to do as a society is to recognize that this is a problem that still occurs and we have to come together, which is what we've done at the Family Justice Center, which has significantly made a difference. We have seen our numbers go down in the county. Um, I do believe in part that's because of the collective efforts of all the organizations that are working together. But I think we have to do more with regard to talking about this and making sure that all of the stakeholders, which include churches and schools and medical professionals, and even our business community, that all players, all parties are aware of this and that they have measures in place, if not to address it, to at least be aware of it. I think outreach and awareness is extremely important. Um, I would also add that laws and legislation is key as well. Um, we know also from research that legal assistance has been shown to be the most effective recourse to effectively um, eliminating or reducing um, domestic violence. So if we can get better laws, if we can get stronger laws that have some teeth where we're holding abusers accountable, 
uh, that we're making things more uh, accessible and more efficient for survivors. Uh, again, the goal is not to re-victimize them going through this process, but to help them to navigate the system and to get justice. So I would say to sum that up, we have to continue to talk about this. We have to come together as a community and address it collectively and also speak to our legislators, do more to get effective laws that help protect survivors and hold abusers accountable. That's a great, uh, Dr. McKay. Now, I've got 30 seconds for one other question. Are there any volunteer opportunities with the center or what can the average person do to support your program? Absolutely. I'm glad you asked about that. Yes, volunteers are an integral part of our services. Uh, they serve in many roles from administration uh, to navigators that actually take people or survivors, clients to varying offices, uh, providers in the building. They also help us with our outreach events and activities, uh, staffing tables, um, our speakers bureau. So we have an outreach volunteer coordinator. Her name is Ashley Green. Uh, she's more than happy to um, get calls. We have it. Uh, there is a process, a recruitment process with an application and some backgrounds that's done. But yes, we do engage volunteers and they're very vital to the work that we do. So thank you for even asking that question. All right. We've been speaking with Dr. Denise McCain, Executive Director of the Prince George's County Family Justice Center. Thank you, Dr. McCain. Thank you again. According to a New York Times article, studies show that domestic abusers are more likely to murder their partners and others in the wake of personal crises, including lost jobs or major financial setback. With the pandemic slamming the economy, experts fear these crises are going to be more prevalent in those communities. Next in this episode of uh, Perspectives on Justice, when we are focusing on domestic uh, abuse, I have with me Catherine Marsh and Militia Hopmeyer. They are both assistant state's attorneys in the Prince George's County State's Attorney's Office. Welcome, uh, ladies, to Perspectives on Justice. Thank you, Your Honor. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you so much for having us, Your Honor. We're, we're really excited to be here. All right, let's get started. Uh, when I read that New York Times article, it was a harsh reality to swallow. And so, uh, Catherine, let's start with you. What do you think about the projection that murder rates may increase during a pandemic? It's accurate. Unfortunately, we have seen an increase in intimate partner violence homicides in Prince George's County. That statistic from the New York Times bears out in other studies across the country during the pandemic. And when you consider strangulation, and I know uh, our survivors spoke about it earlier, strangulation itself for individuals who survive non-fatal strangulation are 750 times more likely to be the victim of a domestic violence homicide. And our statistics here in our area have shown during the pandemic, many of our homicides had that prior strangulation history. 
Uh, Melissa, you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, Catherine and I spend a lot of time speaking to other jurisdictions, both in our in our state of Maryland, as well as around the country. And we've all seen the same thing. Um, there have been an increase of uh, the violent uh, intimate partner violence, strangulation, stabbing, shootings, and an increase, unfortunately, in the homicides. And I think that, you know, the financial burdens are just one of the many factors that comes into play when you when you talk about, you know, why there has been an increase. So, uh, Melissa, let me stay with you for a second. Uh, uh, how about uh, we take a moment to break down the steps and the legal proceedings related to domestic violence? So the question is, what should someone do if they want to take legal action against their partner? You know, if if they want to report a crime to the police, then, you know, I would encourage them in the, in an emergency to call 911 always. Um, but if they want to, you know, just get a protective order against them, which is a restraining order, depending on what jurisdiction you're in, you know, here in Maryland, they can go down to the commissioners. Um, the commissioners are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even during the pandemic. And they can, um, they can file for a protective order and the courts are hearing them um, remotely and some in person, but mostly remotely, um, where they can get a restraining order or protective order. In Maryland, you can get one for an intimate partner for up to a year, and then it can be extended for up to two years. And then if it is the basis of a criminal case, um, there are ways in which the, the victim would be able to qualify for a lifetime protective order. And, you know, we, we help with that in our office, but um, I know you had Dr. McKean uh, on earlier and, you know, the Family Justice Center is just such a important tool, both in Prince George's County and in the many jurisdictions around the country that have them in helping citizens and victims um, have access to the courts with, you know, assistance from um, lawyers. Uh, Catherine, you deal with uh, a lot of these uh, victims that come in. Uh, is the notice uh, well posted or do they know about these uh, the steps they have to take? Well, so notice is done when there's a 911 call. Police officers in every municipality and jurisdiction are trained. They provide the information when they respond to any call. It's also provided, there's many places throughout the county where it's posted, but our number one resource without a doubt is the Family Justice Center. The fact that 21 organizations come together to provide all kinds of services we do try to network through the community throughout the year because I think your question hits on the fact of the biggest concern is not everybody knows what resources are available. And anytime we can get the word out to let every citizen know that there is help, there is resources available. I mean, statistics show that it takes on average about seven times before a victim of intimate partner violence can actually leave their partner. And sometimes that's because they don't know there's help available. So podcasts like yours that get the word out is what we want, because although we do our part when we come in contact with survivors, it's the ones who, as Dr. McCain said, never report that we want to make sure know that help's available. All right, uh, Catherine, and then I'll follow up with a question uh, from Melissa. But uh, Catherine, uh, when someone files an order of protection, what happens if someone violates that order? That's a good question. So what happens is if they violate the protective order, it's actually a criminal violation. 
And so it can be reported to law enforcement, 911 can be called, or the person who received the protective order can actually go to the commissioner's office themselves and take out charges for the violation of the protective order. And violations of the protective order can range from making a phone call or a text in violation of the no contact order to actually showing up and have contact. I think the one thing that we do want to stress to survivors all the time is the protective order is just a piece of paper. Do not wait until the person's actually at your front door or coming in to call 911. If they are showing up in the driveway and it's a violation, please get on the phone and call 911 then because we want to make sure the help's available immediately. Uh, Melissa, uh, from your experience, uh, are these uh, orders uh, effective and uh, do you recommend any changes? I mean, I think yes and no. They're effective in that, you know, when the victim, like Catherine says, calls 911, the police respond urgently to them. Um, but but as she said, they are just pieces of paper. Um, and if a person isn't going to listen to you or listen to a judge, there, you know, there is, not, there is nothing in the legal system that we really can do other than incarcerate that person, you know, and... Um, there are issues with that. Nobody is going to be sent away for the rest of their life for violating a protective order, nor should they be. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's really important um, that the, the changes not only come from making sure that these orders are enforced, but in, in educating the community about uh, domestic violence, about intimate partner violence, and educating the abusers so that they end their cycle of violence too. So I think that, you know, I think that it's important to make sure that we're enforcing the law and that people know that these orders can't be violated and that there are consequences to it. But it's also a further education is really necessary if we're really going to eradicate domestic violence in our community. Oh, wonderful. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Catherine Marsh and Melissa Hopmeyer, who are assistant state's attorneys in Prince George's County in the state's attorney's office. Let me uh, ask you uh, this question, uh, Catherine. Uh, let's talk a little about misdemeanor and felony domestic violence charges. What's the difference between the two? It's the degree of the assault. So when we're talking a misdemeanor, second degree assault, that's often going to be spitting, punching, pushing, even a, a stab wound that's not doesn't cause significant or permanent injury. Our felony assaults would include, thankfully, as of October 1 of last year, strangulation, use of a firearm in any way, so just pointing the gun, let alone using the gun, uh, stab wounds that cause significant permanent or protracted injuries, or any other assault that causes a permanent or protracted injury. That's basically the, the simple version between the difference between a misdemeanor assault and a felony assault. All right. I'm going to ask both of you uh, this next question. In Maryland in 2019, 20 people were killed by intimate partners, and nearly 70% of those deaths were caused by a firearm. We hear about these tragedies on the news, or we read about them on the social media. Someone reports their abuser to the authorities, the abuser gets arrested, but then ends up right back in the house with the victim. Then days or weeks later, the victim ends up dead. Why does this happen? 
What does it take to get an abuser behind bars? You know, that's a really great question. Um, you know, unfortunately, we have, and I think it's not just in Maryland or even in Prince George's County, um, so many victims who recant, um, who sit, you know, in the immediate call 911, want police intervention, want that person removed, even may want that person locked up at that time. But because it's not a typical assault, it's not like a bar fight, um, there is a relationship, there is the power and control that the abuser has over um, the, the survivor, the victim, whether that be financial, whether it be emotional, whether it be children, um, that plays such a big role in whether or not the victim wants to cooperate with the investigation. And so I think for so long, you know, we focus on, we've got that evidence that you know, we needed that night and we don't do any further investigation. And then the victim comes in, recants, and the case kind of falls apart. And so it's really incumbent on, you know, offices like the state's attorney's office and investigators to do their due diligence to make sure they're collecting evidence so that when that recantation happens, the case can still proceed. You know, and we make representations all the time to the court as, you know, I understand the victim is saying she's not afraid. We understand that the victim is saying she, you know, she wants this person to come home, but it is our job to protect not only, you know, to protect the community. We don't, we speak for the victim. Obviously we want to keep the victim in mind, but ultimately we need to make an assessment based on our training and our understanding of domestic violence. And sometimes that puts us at odds with what, what the victim wants. Um, and it, it's a difficult uh, decision for a court to make because they're hearing a victim saying, I want this person to come home. And so we have to present statistics like um, Catherine talked about strangulation, that strangulation makes you 750 times more likely to end up a victim of domestic violence homicide. We have to present the statistics about how, how difficult it is to leave a situation. And we have to, you know, advocate more on behalf of the victim when they're not willing to advocate on themselves. So it really is, you know, I, it is a job that we have to take on and, and do better with. And I think we have in the last few years um, done better with, but, you know, it's not a perfect system. Um, we always uh, look for ways to improve it because it is heartbreaking. I know Catherine would say the same thing when you get that phone call and you know the name of the, of the victim that was just the victim of a homicide because they're, um, they've been in that courtroom before. Um, you know, I, I, I won't ever forget the, the first time that happened to me. I won't forget the last time that it happened to me. Every time that victim stays with me and I wonder what I could have done to save her life. And Catherine, I'm going to ask you the same question. I, I recall when I was the state's attorney for Prince George's County uh, a few years ago, I won't say how many, but I remember the most difficult cases is where the victim came into court and asked the state's attorney to drop the case. All of a sudden, they were buddies again. They came in holding hands. They didn't want the abuser prosecuted. So what, what's your thoughts in this area? Well, I think part of it is what Melissa described, is there's a power and control dynamic that goes on in every instance of intimate partner violence. And I know we've talked a lot about women, but I just want to stress it's for both in this country. Statistically, it's about one in four women and one in seven men experience severe physical violence. But there's that power and dynamic. And a lot of times the recant or the we're fine, everything is great, please drop the charges are because of the pressure that is being put on the victim. Threats against the child or holding visitation for the children against the victim. Financial uh, exploitation of the victim. 
And so part of it is we need to recognize that they may not be in a position to truly let us know what they honestly want to have happen. And our job is to understand the very real statistics and outcomes of intimate partner violence. There is not a single homicide that happens in this county for intimate partner violence that we don't first check to see, is there a history criminally, civilly, what could we have done differently? That, you know, we have a domestic violence fatality review team where we review every single homicide. What did we as a community miss that we don't miss in the future? And I know you'd remember when you were a state's attorney, some of the things that have changed are because of these instances. Now a victim of intimate partner violence can only invoke their marital privilege not to testify one time. That came out of these kinds of homicides. The changes to protective orders where guns and weapons can now be seized. When there's an active domestic violence protective order, a judge can order that the guns be taken. That came out of domestic violence homicide cases and saying, what did we miss? We missed allowing the abuser to keep guns. And so it's heartbreaking every single time it happens, but we're never going to stop trying to figure out what we can do to prevent the next one. Well, I just have a couple more questions. Uh, one, uh, and Catherine, you can answer this one. Uh, uh, if someone has been a victim uh, of uh, abuse, do they need to have an attorney or they represent themselves in court? So criminally and civilly is a little different. If it is in the criminal arena where we see them, they do not need to have an attorney. It is the state of Maryland against the defendant. And so we are the ones who prosecute that case and they do not need an attorney. If they're going for a protective order or for a divorce or child custody, that's under the family law arena. And I know your, your survivor um, bravely told her story and how important having a attorney who's willing to fight for you and the kids is in that family law arena. So it is a little different between the two courts. All right. Um, Lisa, anything you want to add on that question? No, I, you know, I think Catherine is right. And, and, you know, unfortunately, we, we, the legal system is very difficult and can be difficult to maneuver. So uh, it's really important to, to have an attorney if you can, but you obviously can represent yourself. We don't want someone who, who may, you know, think they can't afford an attorney or who doesn't want an attorney to think that they don't have access to the, to the civil uh, justice system. They do. It's just always better um, to have someone who can advocate for you. All right. I have one last question. I ask both of you. Uh, one goal of Perspectives on Justice is to help create change in the area of justice. In pursuit of that goal, I ask my guests to share with us one small step for justice that we can take to make a difference. So, Catherine and Melissa, what small steps for domestic violence justice would you recommend? So I always start with... All right, go ahead, Catherine. I start with educate and advocate. Mm -hmm. So make sure you know the, the facts about it and then spread the word. But what I would say for right now, our legislative session starts next week. And one of the bills that we have proposed is a change to criminal procedure 11304, which is uh, children's forensic interview in criminal cases. So if a child's under the age of 11 their forensic interview that's done by a social worker or a psychologist can be played during the court trial. This legislation that's proposed is to include children who are witnesses of domestic violence. 
understanding that the trauma to children who witness domestic violence is the same as the trauma that children who experience child abuse have. And we want it to be treated equally under the law and to reduce the trauma to the children. So for one thing we can change to work for changing justice immediately is supporting that bill when legislative session opens next week. Understood. Uh, Melissa, what small step for domestic violence justice would you recommend? So I would um, obviously agree with Catherine, and I think the other bill that I think is really important, and I think it's important because it is a step towards um, equality for women and for men, um, is to remove the marital rape exception to sexual assault here in Maryland. We are one of a few states who still allow uh, marriage to be a defense to sexual assault, with the exception of first-degree rape, um, and I think um, that you know, that creates a hindrance for so many um, women who and men who are sexually abused within their, their relationship that they cannot seek justice because the, the court system and our legal system says that their spouse um, has the right because of marriage to rape them. Um, and so I think uh, advocating on behalf of that, um, that bill to pass so that that no longer exists would be a really uh, big move in, in, at least in the state of Maryland. And then just as Catherine said, education of our citizens, of ourselves is just so important um, to make sure that we can end domestic violence in our lifetime. All right, uh, I wanna thank Catherine Marsh and Melissa Hopmeyer, Assistant State's Attorneys for Prince George's County, Maryland for your advice and information and wisdom. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And so we have it. Let me conclude by saying domestic violence is real and domestic abuse affects so many. So many victims have experienced the terrible impact upon their lives through domestic abuse. Fortunately, there are services such as the Family Justice Center available to help victims of domestic abuse. Also, uh, we also have the state's attorney's office in Prince George's County that aggressively seeks to protect victims and bring the wrath of the law on abusers. I want to thank my guests today, Christine Neely, a domestic violence survivor, Dr. Denise McCain, uh, again, the executive director of the Prince George's County Family Justice Center, and finally, two assistant state's attorneys, Catherine Marsh and Melissa Hopmeyer, assistant state's attorneys for Prince George's County. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Perspectives on Justice. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes, be sure to go to wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. I'm your host, Judge Alexander Williams, Jr. Until next time.